The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to gather this morning to sing praises to your name in remembrance of all that you have done for us in our salvation and in our spiritual life and spiritual growth, and then to devote ourselves to the teaching of your word, that we might understand all that you have for us as we study the entire breadth of your revelation, that there is no stone left unturned. There is something there for every issue in life, and we are here to have our thinking renovated and transformed by your word. Help us now as we study these things to understand them, to comprehend them. And Father, we pray that they might motivate us to greater obedience and devotion to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 1. Uh, Galatians, yes, Galatians chapter 1. We're going to do a little review this morning. Sometimes we get occupied with the details and forget the overview. So we're going to go back and overview as we begin this morning. Last week we looked at the issue of Abraham's justification. Now, that was a large bite. In fact, a couple of people mentioned afterwards that that covered a lot of territory and it was just hard to assimilate all that. And that was an overview. Where we're going with this and where... Paul is going in his argument from the beginning of chapter 3 down through the end of chapter 4 is to build on the whole example of Abraham in the Old Testament. So if we don't understand what's going on with Abraham in the Old Testament, it's going to be difficult to understand what's going on in this passage. So everything I said last week is sort of the overview of what we're going to study. That provides an, an, an umbrella, a frame of reference and we'll come back to those passages and those issues again and again as we develop Paul's thought in Galatians chapter 3. We go back to Galatians chapter 1 to pick up the main ideas that Paul is going to emphasize in this epistle. And there are three divisions to the epistle. We can mark them out, I guess it's better to call them Roman numeral 1, Roman numeral 2, and Roman numeral 3. He begins with an introduction. That introduction covers the first uh, ten verses of the epistle. And then there will be a conclusion down at the end of chapter 5. In the introduction, he sets forth his main themes, the main ideas that he's going to cover in this letter, which is true of any good piece of literature. You start your introduction by foreshadowing your, your themes. The first theme that he mentions is covered in the first verse in his introduction. When he describes himself, he says he is an apostle from, not sent, not our, literally the word sent is not there in the original language. He is an apostle, and it did not have its origin from men in the plural, that is, from a group of men, a college of men. In other words, the other apostles didn't appoint him to be an apostle. Neither was it through the agency of any individual human being, but it was through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so the first issue is his own apostolic authority, and the personal revelation that he received from Jesus Christ, and that describes the gospel. 
that will then be the subject of this epistle from 1.11 down through 2.21. That is the subject there. He develops the whole idea of his apostolic authority and the revelation of the gospel given to him that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. This is the gospel that was delivered to him. It was the gospel that he proclaimed in his early ministry, and he had affirmation from the other apostles on when he visited them in Jerusalem. And then there was this controversy between uh, Paul and Peter in Antioch when Peter came up and was influenced by the Judaizers who wanted to add the Mosaic law and legal obedience to the formula. But Paul goes back and he says the formula from the beginning was faith alone in Christ alone, and this is the the only issue for us. And then in verse 4 of the introduction, Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reference at the end of verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, and that is the word didomi in the Greek, which is the word for giving. It always connotes the grace of God the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. And there we have the Greek preposition, huper. Write it down here at the bottom, huper, H-U-P-E-R. Huper plus the genitive indicates substitution. So it should be translated, who gave himself as a substitute for our sins. That's the essence of justification. That's the essence of what Christ did on the cross, is he died as our substitute. He died in our place. Rather than us paying the penalty for sin, he paid the penalty for sin. And that becomes becomes the subject of chapters chapter three one down through the end of chapter four. Now, through all of four, the issue here is the nature, the very nature of the work of Christ. The justification is completely accomplished on the cross by the work of Christ. Now, what is the impact of the work of Christ? That's what's covered in the next phrase in 1-4, that he might. That's purpose clause. It's in the subjunctive mood, which indicates our volition is involved in making this a reality in our lives, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. And deliverance has to do with the whole idea of freedom, which is the subject of chapter, chapters 5 through chapter 6, that Paul begins that by saying that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. He has freed us from the bondage of sin and death and set us free to obedience in Christ. So, chapter 3 deals with the implications of the work of Christ in terms of justification by faith alone, that works are not not involved, and then freedom in Christ becomes the issue in chapters 5 and 6. So right now we have begun our study in chapter 3, verse 1. So let's turn there and pick up the context. Here Paul shifts gears and he just blasts the Galatians. I just love this fact about Paul that he doesn't hold back at all. He tells them the realities of the situation and he is not afraid to to insult them almost, to call them exactly what they are. Foolish Galatians because they have uh, distorted the gospel, they have deserted the gospel, 
and they have uh, become distracted from living the spiritual life. And he asks three questions here, three very important questions. And we have to understand this before we understand the rest of what he is saying in the chapter. The first question is found in verse 2. Verse 2 asks the first question, which is, I want to find out from you one thing. Did you receive the Spirit? And here he's talking about the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. There are seven ministries of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer beginning with common grace when the believer is an unbeliever and proceeding through uh, regeneration, indwelling, filling, uh, efficacious grace. All of these various factors are part of what the Spirit does for the believer. But here he's talking about the indwelling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which takes place at the moment of salvation. At the moment that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit takes up his residence inside the believer and makes your body a temple for God the Son. So what he is referring to here when he says, did you receive the Spirit? He's asking, at salvation, were you indwelt by God the Holy Spirit by means of the works of the law? In other words, was it a result of your being being faithful to the law or was it by hearing with faith? Now, that reminds the Galatians of what happened when Paul came. He didn't say anything about the Mosaic Law. And the answer that this question presupposes is that they received the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith. And they know that. So he's taking them back in time to his first visit there and that they received the Holy Spirit by faith. That is, that they were saved by faith alone and no works. Works were excluded. So his first question focuses on their salvation. Was it by faith or was it by works? These are the two options. Works here, faith here. One or the other. Only those two options. Then in verse 3, he asks the second question. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that is, begun in terms of regeneration, faith alone in Christ alone, having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being brought to completion? There's our word teleao in the Greek, which means brought to completion, not perfected. Are you now being brought to completion or brought to maturity by means of the flesh? So here again we have a contrast between two situations, the flesh or the spirit. Are you trying to reach spiritual maturity through the flesh, through the means of your own sin nature? Remember, the flesh is a technical term in many passages for the sin nature. Are you trying to uh, do it by the flesh or by means of the Holy Spirit? And here we see there is a connection between works and morality and the flesh. This is something that many, many people do not understand, and that is that you can be a good moral person. You can be a moral Christian, and it has nothing to do with your spiritual life. Now, that doesn't mean that you should be immoral, but that means that morality is for a system that God has created for the orderly continuance and protection of the human race. It's part of establishment truth. But morality is for believers and unbelievers alike, and anything that an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. So you can't go out and say, just because somebody's moral, because they go to church, because they do good works and do good deeds, they're constantly trying to help people, and there's nothing wrong inherently with doing any of those things. 
good deeds and good works and charitable contributions and helping people. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if it proceeds from the sin nature, it has nothing to do with your spiritual life. It will not advance you spiritually. It does not uh, acquire the approval of God in any way, shape, or form. And it is all a product of, of your sin nature and comes under the classification of human good. It is not intrinsic good or divine good. It is human good and has no spiritual value. So works is contrasted with faith in verse 2. Flesh is contrasted with spirit in verse 3. And then he asks the third question, In verse 5, does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does God do this by the works of law or by hearing with faith? So he comes back again to this same initial contrast, works of law or hearing by faith. This is how he sets it up. Is this done by works works or faith? These are the only two options. Everything in life is going to fall into either an operation of a work, obedience by the law and production of the flesh, or it's going to be done by means of faith in the Scriptures, faith in God, and in the power of God the Holy Spirit. One or the other. So there has to be a way of determining whether you're operating in the flesh and operating in the Spirit, because even as a carnal believer, you can get caught up in ritual and religion and all sorts of moral activity and confuse that with spirituality. And that's exactly where many Christians are today. So Paul sets this up, and then he's going to come back with an illustration to drive his point home. And that illustration comes from the Old Testament life of Abraham. Abraham was born a Gentile. At the time Abraham was born, there were no Jews Anywhere There was no race known as Jewish. There were just Gentiles. He was born in southern Mesopotamia in a major metropolitan area at that time called Ur of the Chaldees. It was, uh, he was a member of the third dynasty of Ur, which was a, a very uh, prolific and prosperous time in the history of Ur. And he was a member of the pro- probably nobility and aristocracy. Abraham was a very wealthy man. He, he was, we see from what, we, what, from what Genesis describes of Abraham later on that he had a tremendous amount of wealth. But when you see what he took with him when he left her, he was very wealthy. And that indicates that he was part of the ruling class, uh, the upper classes of Ur of the Chaldees. And he is commanded by God to leave Ur of the Chaldees. Now let's go back and get a little bit of a timeline on Abraham, so we see what's going on here. We'll draw our timeline here. Way down here, we'll put the cross off to our right, indicating the beginning of our benchmark for B.C. 2,000 years B.C. represents this line here. Abraham is born in approximately 2166 B.C., 2,166 years before Christ. He lived in Ur for 75 years, we're told in the Scriptures. So that means if you subtract 75, remember you're going backwards here because you're B.C., so you have to subtract. If you subtract 75 from 2166, then you come up with 2,091. So 
that would be right here, 2091. And that's approximately the time that God commanded Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees and to go to a land that God was going to give him. Then, about 2085, just a few years after that, let's uh, take this line out and kind of blow this up a little bit. Let's move 2000 over here. 2166, he's born. 2091, he leaves Ur. Just the next time we see is 2081, that's the birth of Ishmael. Ten years later, 2081 is the birth of Ishmael, or his marriage to Hagar. So that means that when we studied Genesis 15 last week and God establishing the covenant with Abraham, that probably occurred around 2085 to 2083. Can't be sure exactly when, but sometime in that time period, Abraham uh, was given that covenant with God in Genesis 15. Ishmael's born in 2081. In uh, 2086 or 2066, excuse me, Isaac is born, and the sacrifice with Isaac takes place sometime around 2050 is when that, that sacrifice takes place. So this gives us a timeline here of Abraham's life. Now, when God gives him, grants him the covenant in 2085, which is right about here, we saw last week from Genesis uh, 15.6 the statement, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. That's the quote we have here in Galatians 3.6. Abraham believed God. And we saw last week that according to the Hebrew syntax of the perfect verb plus the vav consecutive, that this was not to be translated and then Abraham believed God, as if this is the time that Abraham believes God, when God gives him a promise that he will have a son, Abraham was not believing God at that point. The imputation of righteousness to Abraham did not occur in 2085 when God gave him the covenant and promised him a child that would be from his own loins. The perfect tense indicates that this had already happened at some time in the past, and it would have happened somewhere between his birth in 2166 and the time he left Ur in 2091. We don't know when it occurred, but at some time in there, Abraham reached God consciousness, and he decided that, unlike every other member of his family who were worshiping idols and worshiping the moon goddess and the sun gods and all the other members of the uh, pantheon in Ur, that there was a God who was greater than this mythology, and God in His grace revealed Himself to Abraham as a result of Abraham's positive volition, and, and He revealed uh, promises to Abraham that He would provide a Savior, a salvation, and Abraham believed God. Now, Galatians 3.6 here accurately translates the Greek, Abraham believed God. What we have is the aorist tense of the verb pistuo. P-I-S-T-E-U-O. Pistuo plus the dative articular to-theo. Now this is the definite article T-O and then the noun theo for God. This ending with the iota, little iota subscript indicates it's in the dative case. Now some people might translate this in God, a dative of location. 
provocative sense, believed in God. And a lot of people think that they can be saved by believing in God and that in the Old Testament people were saved just simply by believing in God. But that's not true and that's a poor translation and it would indicate that somebody really doesn't understand Greek. One of the little anomalies in Greek syntax is that normally when you express the object of a verb, you use the accusative case. But here we have an... uh, a dative case used, which normally indicates the indirect object of the verb. However, when you have verbs of believing, such as pistuo and certain other classes of Greek verbs, they express their direct object by taking a dative case. That's just the idiom of Greek. So somebody who was not very learned in Greek would come to this and see that it was a dative case and translated believe in God, and they would be wrong. You have to have a little more advanced knowledge of Greek and realize that verbs of this class take use a dative to express the direct object. So he believed God. What did he believe from God? Well, we can infer from other passages that God revealed to him his plan of salvation. That there is, the scripture says, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Therefore, salvation throughout all of history, from Adam down through the end of time, salvation will always be by means of faith, and the object of faith is always Christ. However, in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the fulfillment of that salvation promise, and now and in the future, we look back on on the cross as the fulfillment of that promise. In the Old Testament, they had a specific promise that God would send a Savior who would pay the penalty for sin, and they had to believe that specific promise, not simply believe in God. There are a lot of people who believe in a generic concept of God, but they had to believe, just as we do today, something more specific than just that God exists. For as James says, even the demons believe that God exists. They know God exists. So it's faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, it is looking forward to that, And we remembered last week when we looked at Genesis chapter 15 that God appeared to Abram and gave him the promise. Now, if God appeared to Abram and all the passage says is that God, the Lord appeared, who is that? Is that God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? Now, most people just generally think that, well, in the Old Testament, whenever you have a theophany, this is the word I I just used, theophany, which means an appearance of God, that it is always God the Father. But that's not true. John chapter 1, verse 18 tells us, in a passage that we've studied, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, He has revealed Him. John 6, 42 also says that no one has seen God at any time except for the Son who reveals Him. So in two different passages in the Gospel of John, we are told that no one has ever seen God the Father, that it is the role of God the Son as a member of the Trinity. His role is to reveal God to mankind. So what we have in the Old Testament, in all the theophanies of the Old Testament, what we have is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Before Jesus took on flesh, 
He would appear as a human in some way, sometimes in other forms, but these were always appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. So when Abraham believed God, he is believing Jesus Christ. That's who he's believing, and that is who, that is the God of Abraham, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is clear in the Old Testament record. Now, the principle here in Romans 6, I mean in, in Galatians 3, 6, that's laid down, is that it, when Abraham was saved, it was on the basis of faith alone. So, if we go back to our chart up here, Paul is drawing a contrast between works and faith. He asked the question, Were you, did you receive the Spirit by works, or did you receive the Spirit by faith? Did you continue by, by the flesh, or are you trying to grow by the Spirit? Were you saved by works, or is, this, is God doing this because of your works, or is He uh, working among you on the basis of faith? Now, let's use an illustration. The illustration, then, that he's using is Abraham. Abraham falls under this column. Abraham was justified by faith alone. There were no works involved. The Mosaic Law was not given for another 600 years. We look at this timeline, and this first statement about Abraham's justification takes place about 2085, and it's not till 1446 that the Mosaic Law is given, probably about between 1446 and 1440 B.C. So it's not for over uh, 400 year, or 600 years before uh, the Mosaic Law is given. So Abraham is saved as, as a Gentile. He comes out of the Ur of the Chaldees. He is a Gentile. He is already saved. He is already a believer. He has already been justified and received the imputation of righteousness. There is no, we'll put this up here, it's a minus. There is no law. There is no circumcision. All that was required of Abraham was faith alone. Now, this strikes home with the, with the Gentile Galatians, because they're just like Abraham. And this is the point that Paul is making, is Abraham didn't have to do anything to be justified. You don't have to do anything either. It's faith alone in Christ alone. This is the point of the illustration set up in verse 6 when it begins, even as Abraham. There is the parallel drawn between Abraham the Gentile, who became the father of the Israelite race, and the Galatians, who were also Gentiles. principle here is that no attributes of the first birth, our human birth, our physical birth, can provide us with fellowship with God. Man has no talents, abilities, works, gifts by which he can have fellowship with God. That comes only as a result of the second birth by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the point that Paul is emphasizing here. Your natural works, your natural abilities, whatever good deeds you do, cannot gain approbation with God. Now, what, what Paul has done is to lay down the fact that you have two options. Option one is faith alone. Option two is works. Works is related to the flesh or the sin nature. It's human good. Faith alone is related to the work of God the Holy Spirit, that God the Holy Spirit is the one who works in you. The illustration of this is Abraham. Abraham lived by faith alone. Now, let's draw a conclusion. 
What can we conclude from this? He raises the issue by his questions. He gives the illustration of Abraham. Then he derives a conclusion in verse 7 indicated by the word, therefore. And then he uses the present active imperative of of gnosko. It's translated in the New American Standard, be sure, but that's not an adequate translation. He's really saying, therefore, you can have certain knowledge, or, or because it's an imperative, therefore, have certain knowledge, have knowledge, know this, that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. What's the conclusion? Here's the argument. You have two options, faith or works. Abraham did it by faith. Therefore, because Abraham did it by faith alone, it is only those who are operating on faith alone that can claim to be true descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it is to those who are of faith, those who are from the source of faith, who are using faith alone and not works, it is only those who are sons of Abraham. And here he uses a very interesting word in the Greek. He uses the word huios. This is a rough breathing mark. It's translated with an H, H-U-I-O-S, and it describes an adult son. When John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son, it uses the word huios. Now, another word that can be used in Greek is the word technon, T-E-K-N-O-N. But this refers to a son who is still a child. Now, in the remainder of this chapter and into chapter 4, Paul is going to run a contrast between a huios and a technon. Over and over again, we're going to come back to this. So it's very important to understand this distinction. You're not going to get this out of your English text. The English only has one word to describe son, and that's the word son. And we can't tell from that word whether we're talking about an adult son or someone who is still a child. But the word here is huios in the plural. It is only those who have faith who are adult sons. Under this analogy, in this chapter and into chapter 4, what we will discover is that the technon, over, which I'll put over here, the technon, the children, are under the law. The law is used as, an, in the analogy, is compared to a pedagogue. That was in the Roman society. That was a tutor that was hired for the child. And the children of Israel, as uh, as technon or under the tutorship of the law. They are not adult sons. But the thrust of the argument that Paul, Paul makes is that Abraham has other sons. He has adult sons. And these adult sons are regenerate members of the human race. Adult sons are born again, and they are, children, and, um, they are the children who are born apart from the law. Those who are under the law are unregenerate. Believers in the church age are always called adult sons. In the Roman Empire, the adult son put on what was called a toga virilis, which symbolized that he had attained maturity and adulthood. He received at that time the right to vote. 
He had the responsibility to serve in the army. He could manage his own property, and he could choose his own wife. This took place when he was 14 years old. Uh, until that point, he was called a, a technos. Under the guardianship of, he was under the guardianship of a slave who managed his property, took him to school, handled his discipline, and all of that. And that, was called, that slave was called the pedagogue. And that's compared in the analogy with the law. So the law for Israel served, like that slave in Roman society, as a pedagogue, as a sort of a slave master, and there was no freedom for that for the technos. There was no freedom. But for an adult son, once he attains the age of adulthood at age 14 and puts on the toga virilis, then at that time he has freedom. He is no longer under the authority of the pedagogue. In the same way, the huios, or adult son, who is in Christ in the church age, is no longer under the law. <coughs> Up until the point that the technos received the toga virilis, he was no better than a slave in his father's household. But when he reached 14, there would be a, at the first Roman feast after his 14th birthday, the father would gather the family together, and he would place a new toga that was made up of purple or, or scarlet and white, and he would place that on the child as a sign that he had now reached and attained maturity. The father would then stand up in the ceremony and remove the toga of childhood and place this new toga on the son and pronounce him a huias. So in the analogy, this extended analogy that Paul is going to lay out, he's going to say that Abraham has two types of children. Type one is a technos. Type 2 is the huios. The technos is under the law, and that's Israel. These are Jews by physical birth. They are related to Abraham by physical birth. They are genetic descendants of Abraham. They are racial Jews, but not necessarily born again and going to heaven. Huios are adult sons. This term is specifically related to believers in the church age. They are not under the law. They are descendants of Abraham because they follow him in faith alone. And so they, they become children of Abraham by virtue of what they do in trusting Christ alone for their salvation. Verse 7 reads, Therefore be sure it is those who are of faith, from the source of faith, who are sons of Abraham. These are born from the source of faith. They are, uh, this is an absolute status. You're either one or the other. You are either saved or you're not saved. There's no process. It's, it's like being dead. You can't just be a little bit dead. You're either dead or alive. You are either saved or not saved. You have the physical seed of Abraham over here, and over here you have the spiritual seed of Abraham. And Paul's point is that Gentiles enter in as adult sons, huios, through the, being the spiritual seed of Abraham by following him in faith. In contrast, the law puts you in bondage, it enslaves you, it hinders you, it makes you a legalist, and it robs you of all spiritual power. We have to follow Abraham by means of faith. Verse 8, 
his argument continues, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by means of faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. When Paul says, and the scripture in verse 8, he is referring back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let's turn back there and do a brief analysis of those verses. These are so critical. This is the foreshadowing of the Abrahamic covenant. This is not the covenant per se. The, co- the actual formal ceremony of establishing the covenant with Abraham doesn't occur until chapter 15. But it is here in 12, 1 through 3 that God gives Abraham the outline of the covenant and makes the initial promises to Abraham. Remember, Abraham was born in Ur of the Chaldees. He is a uh, child of his father Terah. And he has a nephew with him and his wife Sarah. And at the end of Genesis 11, we are told that that, uh, they left Ur of the Chaldees to head to a land that God had promised. And they went as far as Haran in verse 31, and they settled there. Now, Abraham was told to go forth. This is 12.1. The Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now, Abraham only went as far as Haran. He didn't go any further, and his obedience is only partial because he took his father with him and his household with him, and he didn't make it to the land that God had promised him because he wasn't being fully obedient. But they stayed there in Haran for a number of years until uh, Terah died. And then they moved out from there and moved to Canaan. But the promise that God gives is in, begins in 12.1 in the last phrase. He's to leave his relatives, his father's house, and go where? To the land I will show you. So God promises to give Abraham, Abram a specific parcel of land. Verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. This is not Abraham going out in, the, in his own power, his own ability, his own talents to make himself great. God says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And that has to do, you will have a great reputation. So he's going to have descendants. And this is classified scripturally as the seed of Abraham, his descendants. He is going to have physical descendants that will become a great nation. I will make you a great nation. This is the second aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. And the third is, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall, this is a result of uh, blessing by association, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, And the one who curses you, I will curse. And then the final statement, And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the third category of the Abrahamic covenant is blessing for all families. Not just your physical descendants and Jews, but for all families in the human race. That there will be an aspect of this blessing that has a primary fulfillment in your write this up here, primary fulfillment in your physical descendants 
That's the subject of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. But it's going to have a secondary application in universal blessing. So what Paul is telling the Galatians back in Galatians 3 is that you go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant and you discover that God always had a plan and a purpose for the Gentiles. And you can go back to this, this third part of the Abrahamic covenant and God specifically included all the Gentiles in the blessing provision of the Abrahamic covenant. It's been there all along. The Jews were not to have an exclusive right to salvation. The Jews were going to uh, have the custodianship of the Scriptures, and they were going to be responsible for evangelism during the Old Testament period. But that's the limit. They were not saved exclusively. There were many Gentiles throughout the Old Testament who received salvation. Nebuchadnezzar comes to mind, and there were several others, uh, important figures, leading figures who received salvation and probably thousands of more Gentiles who heard the gospel in the Old Testament and trusted Christ as their Savior. So the salvation of Gentiles is not something new. It has a history. Let's turn back to Galatians chapter 3. So when Paul refer- says, and the Scripture, he is referring back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, which looks forward to and anticipates that Gentiles will be saved as a result of the blessing God gives to Abraham. Now, of course, that blessing that God gives to Abraham is, in, is specifically related to the seed. And Paul will make this argument later on in this chapter that the seed is in the singular, not the plural. So that has specific fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham. And it is through his death on the cross that everyone will be blessed because the atonement is unlimited. 1 Timothy 4.10 says that Christ is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. So he died on the cross for every sin in human history committed by every single human being who existed in human history. And it is on that basis that every every human being has the potential of receiving the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, and that is done by faith alone in Christ alone. So the Scripture anticipated this and prophesied this in Genesis 12, 3, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by means of faith. So how would God justify the Gentiles? By means of faith. Once again, we go back to our category. It's either by, by faith or it's by works. Works. Gen- Abraham was a Gentile. He was saved as a Gentile. He didn't have to perform any works. He was minus the law, minus circumcision. Abraham was saved by faith alone. And then Paul comes back and he says, this was clear even in the Abrahamic covenant that the blessing would be By faith alone, Gentiles were never required to obey or to apply the Mosaic Law at any point in time. A number of years ago, I did a detailed study through all of the prophets and prophecies in the Old Testament related to the Gentile nations. There is a a group of people, uh, hyper-Calvinists called Reconstructionists, 
who set forth a theory that's called theonomy. Theonomy comes from two words, theos meaning God and namos meaning law. And it is the idea that God's law should be applied throughout all of history to all nations, to all peoples. And if we would just go back to applying God's law today, then our nation would recover. And they're very, uh, they're, they're very crusader-oriented. They're involved in heavily in all the anti-abortion uh, movements. They're involved in a lot, of pro, uh, a lot of homeschooling material, many other things like that. Uh, and many groups go to, without realizing it, read some of these uh, writers so their influence is far beyond their numbers. And they influence this whole idea of God's law. But one of their major problems is that you can't find any passage, any passage, anywhere in the Old Testament where God requires of the Gentiles specific obedience to a Mosaic law uh, ordinance. Not once is there a specific statute in the Mosaic law that's ever mandated uh, a Gentile. Now, you can find other uh, general moral laws, such as the uh, condemnation of murder and thievery and other things like that, but they have their basis in the covenant God made with Noah. The Mosaic covenant, God said, I am making this covenant with the house of Israel, and specifically with Jews, and has nothing to do with Gentiles. The Mosaic law had nothing to do with salvation. The Mosaic law was to show that man could not be good enough for God, that man could not have perfect righteousness, that God could never meet the that man could never meet the absolute standard required of the perfect righteousness of God. And we have studied this principle that what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies, motivated by the love of God and expressed by the grace of God. So the righteousness of God is the standard for God's all of God's activity towards man. Justice is its application. So therefore, what the righteousness rejects, the justice of God must condemn. And what the Mosaic Law does is it establishes a standard. It establishes a perfect standard from God and reveals that nobody can keep that perfect standard. Therefore, they are in need of someone to stand in their place. And that's accomplished through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. And Romans 10.14 says that Christ is the end of the law. He is the goal of the law. In Jesus Christ, He fulfilled everything in the law, was fulfilled by Christ, so that when we are saved and we put our faith alone in Christ alone, and we are identified with Christ, His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and on the basis of that imputed righteousness, which is perfect under the law, on the basis of His perfect righteousness, we are declared just. That's the mechanics of justification. With the imputation, when we receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, God the Father looks at that perfect righteousness, not our relative righteousness, but He looks at Christ's perfect righteousness, and we are declared to be just or righteous. So, Paul can then say that this was foreshadowed and prophesied by the Mosaic Covenant, that God would justify the Gentiles by means of faith, And this gospel was proclaimed beforehand 
Gospel means good news. This gospel was proclaimed beforehand to Abraham. And then the quote, All the nations shall be blessed in you. And now Paul draws his conclusion. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Two categories we've talked about here. Those who are operating on faith, those who are operating on the works of the law. Works of the law comes from the flesh. Faith, those who are of the faith operate in their spiritual life by dependence on God, the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Those who operate on works are fooling themselves because it comes from the energy of the flesh. An example from the Old Testament, the benchmark example, the paradigm of faith alone and Christ alone is Abraham. Abraham was given the promise of God that through him all nations, including all which would include all Gentiles, will be saved or blessed by means of faith. How does that occur? Because they follow Abraham in faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. So then, Paul concludes, those who are of faith, if you're in this category, Galatians, and you're operating on faith alone, then you are truly a child, a son of Abraham, a huios, and you will receive this blessing forever. You will enter into a, an application of the Abrahamic covenant under that third category of blessing because you are operating on faith. But if you're over here and you're tr- trying to live to gain salvation by works, or you're trying to be matured in the spiritual life by means of the flesh and emphasizing morality instead of spirituality and the filling of the Holy Spirit, then you are not going to be included in the blessings from Abraham and you will be at salvation you will be excluded from eternal life and you are trying if you are trying to live the spiritual life on the basis of the flesh then you will be excluded from any rewards at the judgment seat of Christ in heaven and the result of that is that you will be a loser or failure in the spiritual life you'll still be saved and that would be true of the Galatians they're like so many believers they trust Christ alone for their salvation but they spend the rest of their life trying to advance spiritually on the basis of their own works, their own morality, ritual, religion, whatever it is. They're trying to somehow do, do, do and gain the approval of God rather than relaxing, learning doctrine under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, applying it in their lives and advancing. There are only the two options. It's the sin nature or the Holy Spirit. There is no third way. The Scriptures, it's very clear from the terminology we're going to see again and again in the next couple of chapters, that the option is either the sin nature of the Holy Spirit. You can't be saved and then try to advance simply by obeying Scripture. And this is what's taught today. This is what I was taught when I was in most of my classes when I was going through Dallas Seminary. It's what, what it comes out of most seminaries today and what most pastors are teaching. And that is that if you want to grow spiritually, what you need to do is apply Scripture to your life. You need to do this. You, and and they'll, they're right in all, all of the mandates that they're insisting that you follow. But the one thing that's left out is how do I do this? What is the mechanic? What is the mechanic? What is the means by which I do this? And they're totally ignorant of the fact that a person operating on their sin nature 
can do can perform many of these mandates in Scripture. They can learn uh, to do a lot of these different things. They can learn what the mandates are. They can they can try to fulfill them in the flesh. They can pray. They can go to church. They can accumulate notebooks of doctrine. They can learn all kinds of things. It's just academic truth. And when you ask the question. How do I know that this is from the Holy Spirit or I'm just doing it on my own energy? They can't answer the question. They've rejected the whole concept that the filling of the Holy Spirit is the consequence of confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. And once you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that puts you in a position that gives you the potential to go forward in the spiritual life. As soon as you sin, you lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. But if you continue... In obedience to God, once you're saved, I mean, once you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then you advance spiritually. And that's the goal, is to advance spiritually, learning doctrine, and applying it. And very few people teach that anymore, and so we're reduced to, uh, we're reduced Christianity to simply another do-good system of morality. And you hear this over and over again on much that's on Christian radio, much of the material that's promoted in terms of family life and, and marriage and everything else, it's all, it might be good advice, but you never hear, how do I walk by means of the Holy Spirit? How do I know if this is by the Spirit or by the flesh? And it's just ignored. So that spirituality or the Christian life is reduced to nothing more than simple moral obedience, and you can't distinguish that moral life from the life of a, of a good moral unbeliever. So we must advance by faith alone and under the mechanics of the filling of God the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying that if you are if you Galatians want to live like Abraham, then you have to get out from under the bondage of the law. You're either led by the Spirit and I mean Galatians 5:19 says if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's the option. God has something greater for believers. In the church age, we have a unique spiritual life. This is the greatest spiritual life in all of history. It is phenomenal. Everything that God has given you and everything that God has given me for living the spiritual life is unique. No one else in history had it. Moses didn't have it. Abraham didn't have it. David didn't have it. No one in the Old Testament had it. The first person to exemplify a life based on dependence and God the Holy Spirit, was the Lord Jesus Christ, and He was the one who pioneered this spiritual life. But it is unique. It is an incredibly powerful spiritual life. And it is ours. And what happens is that most Christians have no idea it exists, no idea how to live it, and they're just out there generating wood, hay, and stubble instead of gold, silver, and precious stones. So let's remember this as we go through these next chapters. Next verses in this chapter, how important it is to pursue a life on the basis of God the Holy Spirit. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word this morning. To understand the difference between living a spiritual life based on faith and living a spiritual life based on works energized by the sin nature. We're reminded the scripture tells us how deceptive the sin nature is. And how easy it is for us to convince ourselves that the good that we are doing is in fact a product of the Holy Spirit rather than a product of the flesh. And so it's easy to get caught up in religious activity and ritual and just doing things we know we ought to do and thinking that somehow that impresses you when the only thing that impresses you is the righteousness of Christ 
in us and our willingness to learn your word. And when we learn your word and apply it in our lives under the filling of the Holy Spirit, it is a production that you are doing in our lives, and we can take no credit for it. And that's the issue, that we rely upon you exclusively and not on our own energies or efforts. So, Father, remind us of these things in the coming days. Uh, Challenge us and encourage us in our pursuit of spiritual maturity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.